0: Want to uh, wish? Well, it's, it's actually kind of out of character where you don't do this from the pulpit typically. But uh, if your birthday happened to be yesterday, I just want to wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> uh, twenty ninth is typically not a day we can celebrate. Is there anyone here whose birthday was actually on February twenty ninth? So at the eight thirty service, one person actually raised their hand and said it was their birthday. So we clapped for them and quite a unique thing, but it's, I guess last week or so, um, Laura and I were trying to explain to our seven-year-old daughter uh, what leap year is all about, and why we have an extra day, the 29th, right in the middle of it, and trying to explain the science and the earth, and it's it's like, it's complex, and kind of hard to understand, and only comes around once every four years anyway, but it kind of, it, it, in some ways, it reminds me of the Transfiguration uh, from that perspective, because this story is, seems a little odd or different than all the other stories, just kind of sits out there uniquely uh, by itself. Uh, it's complex. It's kind of hard to understand what's really going on uh, in this story, And as I'm sure every year, you hear one or two sermons about the death of Christ, the crucifixion, the suffering. You hear that story all the time, which you should. And you hear sermons on the resurrection uh, over and over, a number of times a year, uh, the issue of resurrection comes up. But I bet for most of you, you haven't heard a sermon on the transfiguration in four years. Uh, Or maybe even more. But I actually think this story that Mark conveys, this event, this transfiguration, is a central event, and I'm actually going to say it is the center event of his gospel. Uh, It's it's an event, it's a story, uh, it's an occurrence that we need to put time into understanding and heed and find application for it uh, in our lives with the same passion we would as if it was uh, the crucifixion or the resurrection, because indeed it has implications for our lives. So let's take a moment and pray towards those ends. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you'd give us wisdom as we consider this amazing moment in redemptive history on this mountain with those you so dearly loved, Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to apply the truths that are embedded within to our lives. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. It actually might sound a little controversial to say that Mark makes the Transfiguration the central event of his gospel, because whenever we approach the Gospels, we are we're trained to do so with the lenses of the Resurrection. Uh, at the end, and appropriately so. Matthew, um, John, Luke, those three Gospels, each of them end with all kinds of stories around uh, the resurrected Christ, interacting with him, with his disciples, and, and others. And, and, and so, of course, we, we just lean in towards the fact that the resurrection is the climax of of the gospel accounts. And of course, the resurrection, it really is the fundamental truth in which our worldview is based. Uh, It's the way we see things as Christians. It's why we have hope in life. It's uh, everything about the resurrection is is central to our faith uh, and way in which we live our lives out. And I'm sure if we had the opportunity to sit with Mark, he would agree with all of this wholeheartedly that, that the resurrection is the central truth and reality to the hope we have as people of faith. But even though that's the case, Mark doesn't shape his gospel uh, account utilizing resurrection appearances. Uh, in, in fact, when you look in chapter 16, you don't meet a resurrected Christ. Uh, in the same way you do in the other Gospels. You hear an angel make a proclamation that indeed he's risen, but from that point on, there's no personal interaction of of Jesus with other people in that context. Uh, The resurrection, it it just doesn't appear in the same way. And actually, the very end of it, it, it It actually kind of ends with a fear-filled, almost depressive note in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. After the interaction of the angel at the tomb with these women, Mark tells us that the women fled the tomb in fear and said nothing to anyone. That's how Mark ends his gospel. I mean, they do end up telling others. The other gospels say that they actually do go and interact with Peter and others to tell them what has happened. But not in Mark's gospel. That's it. That's how the gospel of Mark ends. In fact, the uh, end of Mark felt so anticlimactic that at some point in the early transmission of the gospels, uh, you know, as they're being told or written out, at some point, someone stuck on an epilogue uh, that was added. And, and if you look at it, it's much more cheerful and and uh, upbeat. You can read it in Mark chapter, 9, chapter 16, 9 through 20. Uh, most of our Bibles, it'll actually note in there that the earliest manuscripts didn't have verses 9 through 20 uh, in them. And as I said, as, as you read them, it, it, that section, it's positive, it's triumphant. Uh, it, it's a great ending, you know. It, it, stylistically, though, if you look at it, it looks different. It sounds a little bit different than what Mark's writing has been. Uh, and, you know, it, it's sort of... It's happy. <laughs> but Mark doesn't end his gospel that way. What Mark ends the book, his book on, is is actually, it's mostly focused in on the crucifixion. uh, Long telling of the story. And then the last words again are this fearful response of women at the empty tomb, which from a literary standpoint, it's provocative, but... It just has this feeling of of like a low point. It doesn't feel like a high point. Now, again, I want to affirm that the death of Christ on the cross is a high point um, in an unfortunate way. But it's a high point for us as believers who depend 100% upon that death to secure life and eternal um, life with with the Lord Himself, so uh, you know that that is a, a significant central reality for us. But but when you're telling a story and wrapping something together in a beautiful package, when you end with the hero being crucified and dead, and with one little statement that well he's resurrected and the very last picture is women hiding in fear, not knowing what's going on. It's, it's hard to say that that's anything but a downer at the end. And you know when we think of Matthew chapter 28 and Jesus is up on the mountain after all this happened and he's on a mountain with his disciples. And, and he's there saying, uh, I, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go, I send you. And I mean, that's the way you end a gospel, right? <laughs> or, or Luke. Luke has at the end of his gospel, after uh, interactions with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's taken into heaven. That's the way you end a story. But that's not the case with Mark and, and, and don't think he got it wrong. I mean he, this, he, I'm convinced after reading Mark all of this winter and, and thinking and working in it, and I'm convinced this is exactly what Mark wanted to do with his gospel to, to end his gospel in this way. He had a purpose behind it, uh, it he could have chosen to end it like the other Gospels. He knew all of those stories because he got all this word, his, his narrative, what happened from Peter himself. He was fully aware of all of this. So th- there's a couple other ways that you can see that 16, 8, and you know, chapter 15 and 16 up to 8 really is the end uh, of the Gospel because in that little section, there, there's parallels to the beginning of the gospel. And, and writers often do that. Where you start, you kind of end. Like a good sermon sometimes will start with a story. And at the very end, you bring it in. It feels like, oop, good package, right? Uh, that's what happens here. At the chapter 1, you have Jesus, uh, as he's being uh, baptized... The, the spirit, you know, descends on him and you hear this voice from heaven saying, this is, the, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. You know, this is the son of God. This, this is my son, the sonship of Christ. Well, when you look in uh, chapter 15, upon his death on the cross, there's a Roman soldier who looks up to Jesus and says, surely this is the son of God. Where it starts, that's where it finishes. Uh, At the beginning, chapter 1, the main message that says Jesus is preaching is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when you go to chapter 15 and Jesus is being taken off of the cross, Uh, A man named Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, hey, I want to take responsibility of this body. And there's just this interesting little description of Joseph of Arimathea. All the ways you could describe Joseph, the way he's described by Mark is, Joseph was one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. So it starts with sonship. It ends with sonship. It starts with kingdom of God. It ends with kingdom of God. And and so you see there's sort of a package uh, from beginning to end. But here's where I think it gets particularly interesting. This week I um, asked Michael Balboni. He has a, a super duper fancy Bible program on his computer so I said, uh, Mike, Michael, could you um, find for me the very center of the gospel of Mark in Greek? Uh, what, what's the very center word in the gospel of Mark? Uh, and as he, as he came back, he came back with a smile on his face. And I was really happy uh, because it confirmed what I was suspecting, that the very, very center of the gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 9 verse 2. It's it's the story of the transfiguration that as it begins to unfold. Now, of course, there's different Greek translations, and so it might be this way or that way a bit, but but the point is the middle, very center of the gospel is this event of the transfiguration. It's literally the, the center. Uh, and, and as we begin to consider it, you'll see that it's tied so wonderfully with the themes that we hear at the beginning uh, and the end of the gospel. First, we find out that it's all about the kingdom of God. It's realization, it's, its presence, it's imminence. What do we, what's the very first verse we read today? It, it started actually Mark 9, 1. Which isn't a part of the story of the transfiguration. It's actually the end of the discourse that happened just before. Jesus is saying, you know, uh, take up your cross and don't be ashamed of me. And then he, he says, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So okay, when's that going to happen? You know, maybe it's when the resurrection happens, um, and theologically, that's really true. That's that's where the kingdom of God begins to come in its fullness. Um, maybe this is a reference to at the end of time that you know one day. But that's it's hard to imagine because the disciples are there, and you know some those who are here are going to experience. So, but you know maybe that's the reference. But. But the next thing it says is then six days pass. And that's the only time in Mark's gospel where he uses a numerical statement about days that pass. This is, there's something where he's connecting what just was said to what is just about to unfold. And well, what happens? God descends from the heavens Above in a cloud. And where do we see in the Old Testament places where a cloud descends uh, in in the midst of Israel? Well, one of the places you could turn to is the temple. Right? When Solomon builds the temple, they pray, and it says that a cloud descends on that temple people go scurrying. It's the Lord himself who, who shows up in the midst of his people. What's the temple? The temple is the palace of God. It's, it's the secure place on his mountain, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, this place where God himself would be present with his people and rule among his people. He was in his palace on his throne as that cloud descended. But that's not the first thing you probably thought of. You thought of the cloud descending on Mount Sinai, right? That Moses going up. And by the way, as Moses goes up, uh, before he goes up, if you look at Exodus 24, it says that six days passed. And then he goes up into the mountains, uh, into into the mount um, on top of Mount Sinai. Six days, same kind of language that Mark chooses to use to describe the days that passed. Uh, so there's there's all there's multiple connection here to Mount Sinai as it's unfolding. Six days pass. They go up. Cloud comes down. Uh, and what what was going on in Mount Sinai when the cloud? Co- what, what is happening? Well, it's it's. A covenant making experience where the kingdom of God was coming and the Lord King himself was coming to be among his people wherever that uh, tabernacle would go. The cloud would be there. He would be in the midst of his people. He was establishing a unique people for himself, making a kingdom for himself. The Ten Commandments, the law, it's all given. Law, that's a kingdom. Here's the way the the kingdom is going to operate. And so Mount Sinai was uh, the place in which the kingdom of God in that um, dispensation, that time period was established among his people. Uh, And of course, not only that, then you have Moses himself present Right? Moses and Elijah. And commentators usually, when they think of Moses and Elijah in this context, they think, well, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And so both the law and the prophets are there with Jesus, affirming that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the corpus of Old Testament expectation. And and that's true. That uh, You can't argue with that. That's uh, uh that's completely true. But I would go a little bit further and say, it's not just sort of a general statement about old Testament and law and prophets, but it's actually all about kingdom. Because again, when Moses goes up onto the mountain, it's all about establishing God's rule among his people. And, the same is true with Elijah. Elijah, the ex- expectation after the exile, after the kingdom fell apart and the people came back in the land, uh, you know, Elijah had been taken away and there was always this expectation that Elijah would come back and as it, our passage spoke about, Elijah would restore all things. Well, what restore what things? Restore the kingdom of God. And so you have both of uh, Moses and Elijah as the one who started, established the covenantal kingdom presence of God in the midst. You have Elijah who's the one supposed to be coming and then the restoration of that kingdom would happen. So they're both there to testify to the fact that the kingdom of God was now uh, imminent and present and about to be fully established. And But not only do you have the kingdom uh, metaphor coming in from all these different ways, but you have the king himself, right? Uh, Here Moses, I'm sorry, here Jesus is, uh, the first thing that happens is he begins to radiate light, self-generated light. What is that? Uh, Now, Again, it goes back to Moses, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, sees the Lord. As he uh, descends, he's radiating light. But it's not self-generated. And somehow, some way, the glory of God, the light that was on God, had then impacted, infused him. That as he went down, he was also uh, shining forth in, in some minimal but like manner. But so much so that those who saw him were freaked out and they had to put a veil over his face uh, because of the light that he was emanating. But it didn't come from Moses. Uh, Where's this light, this shining, this luminescence, this glorious presence? Where's it? He's a self-initiator. The only one that initiates light like that is, create, you know, creation. God said, let there be light. And there it is, light. What in the world could Peter and James and John make of this manifestation? But here's God himself. Here's the king of kings. We're standing in his very presence. And then... As the cloud descends, a voice from heaven speaks, says, Jesus, you are my son. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased, the Father says. And that language, of course, comes from another covenant-making experience when Nathan the prophet speaks with uh, David and says, David, the Lord says that you, uh, from you, one of your offspring will establish a, an everlasting kingdom. And I will be his father and he will be my son, the Lord says. And so here on top of this mountain, this voice Makes this royal enthronement proclamation that Jesus Christ, the one standing here, the one illuminated before these disciples, is indeed the fulfillment of this kingdom promise. The king was now standing in their very presence. So you get both themes, the kingdom of God and the son of God together in this remarkable event on top of this mountain. The same theme that you start with, the same theme that you end with. It's now in the center, but it's in the center in a way that is amazing. The first eight chapters of Mark well, you first find out, you hear these themes, but then you begin to see them played out. And you see Jesus healing people. You see Jesus miraculously feeding people, casting out demons and, and, and teaching. That's amazing. And it's like you're walking up to the top, just kind of making movement, going further and further up and understanding who he is. And then you get to Mark 8 where Peter says, You are the Christ, this declaration. And it's like you're almost to the top. And then in the very center, you keep on, you keep on going up. And now it's just Peter, James, and John. They're they're on top of this mountain. And this is the, you know, he's been on other mountains. He's on this mountainside. He goes up, goes that mountainside. This is the only mountain that's called the high mountain. This is a high mountain. None of the others were described. This is the highest place. This place where this is happening is the furthest place in the gospel. It's all the way up north. It's it's Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, by the way, was a a mountain that was associated with a number of pagan temples. And uh, it's in the land of Bashan, the land of serpents. I mean, this is... This is all happening in super duper enemy spiritual kind of territory. And here, Jesus is at the top of this mountain in the center of the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. Again, that's a proclamation of um, war against the kingdom of darkness. And and just again, think about his, his presence, his what he looks like in this statement. Is there anywhere else in Mark's gospel where you get a clear picture and vision of who this man is? He looks like the Jesus of the book of Revelation, just shining and glorious and powerful. He looks like Moses, but he's much, much more. He looks like King David, but he's much, much more. He looks like what it, Luke describes or in Acts uh, of Jesus of Ascension on a cloud, riding the cloud. Now the cloud's there and he's there. He looks like the God of creation who says, let there be light and there's light. Every single aspect of biblical identity of this person of Christ is seen at the very, very, very tippy top in the very center of this gospel at the highest point, furthest point away from Jerusalem over the kingdom of darkness. The father finishes it off, doesn't he? With this statement from the heavens above, this is my son, whom I am pleased with. And what happens after the transfiguration? What happens after being at the top of this mountain? Well, now everything is downhill from there. From the height of that glorious moment we descend into caustic contention with religious leaders quarreling among the disciples and betrayal by his disciples and then you reach the nadir at the end of the gospel as Jesus is crucified under the thumb of Rome. In The gospel of Mark, the transfiguration is the pinnacle moment of revelation that absolutely cannot and should not be missed. And then seconds later, poof, it's all gone. And there's regular old Jesus standing before the disciples. And then the descent from here to Calvary begins. Why why does Mark tell his gospel on that kind of story trajectory? Why does he shape it in this way? Well, it's all about the disciples, isn't it? I mean, if you read through this section Uh, you're going to hear over and over, it's all about the disciples. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, uh, Jesus took his, Peter, James, and John, it says he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up, and they were all alone. So he takes them with him. And they were all together. And he was transfigured before them, it says. So four different statements just in verse 2 where it's they, they, them, them. Uh, verse 4, it says, then Moses says uh, that, uh, that, then Mark says that Elijah and Moses appeared before them in verse 4. Verse 7 says, a cloud covered them. It's all about them them, them, them. As much as this is about Jesus and his identity, it was all about these men who were invited up to watch what unfolded before their eyes. Peter is exactly right when he says to Jesus, uh, it's really good that we're here, Jesus. You got it, Peter. Peter. That's why, that's why this is all happening. Because you're here. He had no idea what he was saying. He's scared to death. But he sure did get it right. It's really good that we're here. Because that's what it was all about. So after the dazzling light emanates from Jesus. After the appearance of Elijah and Moses. After the cloud. After this royal declaration of Jesus' kingship. What's the very, very, very last thing, the very tippy, tippy top of the pinnacle of, of revelation that happens? What is it? The voice from heaven says, listen to him. That's what you heard echoing in the valleys below as it all disappeared. Listen to him, 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 him. Just that's, that's all that was left. The bells and the whistles, they all disappeared. They were left with one single command. Listen to him. That's what the transfiguration is all about. You see who he is. You, you see what he's bringing about. What should you do? You should listen to him. That's the tippy-tippy-tippy top of the event, at the very center of the gospel of Mark. You know, Nike, Nike, they have a three-word little pithy identity about them. Just do it. Wendy's used to have um, what was it? A, Where's the beef? Three words. Where's the beef? Uh, McDonald's. What, what's McDonald's? It's, um, oh, you know it. It's it's what? That. That's right. Well, <laughs> I thought it was, I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm loving it, right? So what is the three-word brand from the gospel of Mark? The three-word brand that we should take and sear into our side and into our heart is listen to him that 's what it 's all about my uh, my poor wife Laura she I just drive her crazy because she 'll go through she 'll tell me things uh, you know Chris you got to you know pick up Josiah at this time, and when you come home, make sure you get the laundry out of the washer and move it over to the dryer and then put this on and she's telling me all kinds of good things about my life what I'm supposed to do and then like five minutes later I'm like okay Laura what did you say what was I what was I supposed I just drive her crazy because I'm looking at her but I'm certainly not listening Why did the disciples need to be on that mountain with Jesus? I mean, think about it. First, Peter just identified Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that good enough? Well, it certainly wasn't because right after that, Jesus basically says to him, get behind me, Satan. You know, like you don't get it. You don't understand. You think you get it, but you don't get it. Peter needed to see even a greater revelation to understand who this Jesus actually was that was his friend, but also his king. Jesus also had just said some very hard words. I'm going to die. You need to get your head around that. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your own cross. And that means... Denying yourself, it means your own kind of death. Those are tough words. And you're not going to do any of that unless you really, really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They needed to see Jesus in his fullness in that picture. They needed to see that. Particularly as they began to go down the mountain and towards the cross. Why did Mark shape his gospel like this? Well, Mark had two audiences, didn't he? The the first, you know, this is the the gospel to the Gentiles. They they didn't understand any of the Jewish stuff. And so Mark writes this in a way that would be like, if you don't understand anything, let me try to explain to you who this Jesus is. Those, that audience, those Gentiles, they were presented with Jesus as the one who brings the kingdom and the son of God at the beginning of the gospel. And they they read and they track with who Jesus is. And wow, look what he's doing. Wow, look at his teaching. And, and they're drawn into a greater understanding, moving up, moving up until you get to chapter 9. Like, oh my goodness, this is who Jesus is. You know, Mark writes his the gospel for the Gentiles from that perspective. But the second half of the gospel, he had a different audience. That audience, they they were the Christians in 60 AD, 65 AD, 70 AD, who were under severe persecution, who were suffering because of their testimony about their faith in Christ. And... When you're suffering, particularly for your faith, your proclamation, the faith that you're holding on to relentlessly, and you're being persecuted because of it, you've got to think, is it really worth it? Look at my life. It's a mess. Do I, should I really suffer because of it? Is it really worth it? What's Mark's answer in his gospel? It's, From the pinnacle all the way down to the crucifixion. Brother or sister, Jesus knows. He's lived it out. And you have got to remember, when you're down here, you've got to look back up and remember who that Jesus is you met. Because that's him. And you better believe it if you're down here. It's still worth it. So that raises the question of why is this gospel told for you? Are you listening? No, are, are you like those disciples who you, you, you have an idea of who Jesus is? You, you've, some of you have been at Park Street 30 years, 40 years. You've heard it all and you just, oh, I know, I know he's the Christ. But do you really know who he is? he is? He is that, he is the son of God on the mountain in full glory and manifestation of who he is. Do you know him yet? There's probably still some growing left for you. Those of you who are mature in your faith. Maybe you don't know him at all. And you're like those Gentiles. And so walk up this mountain. Investigate who he is. And I am assured that if you do so with an open heart, you're going to be just like those three brought into his presence and understand a deeper appreciation for the one who has the ability to save you from your sins. Maybe you're like those first century Christians who are in the midst of persecution and hardship. You are suffering. You're suffering from sickness. You're suffering from relational disintegration in your life. You're suffering because of your testimony in Christ. You're just suffering right now. And you're here. I know you're here. And you're thinking, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Look back. Look up the hill. Remember the Jesus of the transfiguration, because yes, brother or sister, it's worth it. Keep on going. What's it mean to listen to him? Listen to him. That's what the Lord says. What's it mean? You know, we... we I know like spiritual directions, a big thing right now, you know, where you, somebody helps you to sit quietly and read scripture and pray and, and you're supposed to listen for God's voice. Lord, tell me what I, oh, okay. and, and that's a good thing. You know, if, if the Lord speaks that way and it all works out, that's great. I hope, I hope he does. That's not what's going on here. This is not an encouragement to sit quietly and Expect. I mean, and I love that posture. Actually, I love the posture of expecting or or believing that God is alive and that He loves us and He wants to interact and speak into our lives. That's what's a great posture to have. But, but that's not what's going on here. This is listen to Him. Is He has told you who He is. There's no denying. Here it is on the mountain. You see who he is. Believe who he is. He is the son of God. The king of kings. Believe it. Listen to it. Believe, take it to heart. And, and believe what he says. Believe that yes, one day this resurrection experience, it, it'll apply to you. One day... There will be a time where there'll be no more mourning or death or crying. The old order will be passed away. All things will be made new. Believe it because he said it. Listen to him. Oh, just in your head, mentally, believe what he tells you is true. That's what it means to listen to him. And then do what he says. You know, I... I, to, to sit and, and you know, God tell you know, try to figure out what He's telling me to do just by sitting there. I have a hard enough time just obeying the things He's already told me to do in Scripture, right? Listen to that. Just do that. If you if you can do that, what a great life and blessing that He will bring. If you listen to him, if you're obedient to him, believe who he is, believe what he says, do what he tells you to do. That's what it means to listen to him. And Peter, up on that mountain, comes down, and he still has a hard time. You know, he goes through a couple, couple places of doubt, and uh, bitterly weeps because of his. Lack of faith, but you know, in the end, he listened. He confessed the places of his failure. And some of you need to do that too. I've failed. I I haven't listened well enough. Well, just change your heart and start listening. Confess that. Lord, I'm sorry. And start obeying and listening. And that's what happened with Peter. Because we know that Peter in the New Testament, he writes two letters. The first letter is all basically focuses in on suffering. And and in that first letter, he starts off by, by saying, praise be to the Lord who has given us a living hope through his resurrection. And it goes on from there. You've got to see your suffering in light of the truth of the resurrection. That's what his first letter is about. His second letter Comes at the end of his life. He makes statements like, I'm not going to be with you long. What I'm sharing with you right now, I do not want you to forget about. And he begins to address false prophets. And what is true and what is not. And in the middle of that letter, he says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God, from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son with whom I love with whom I am well pleased. He says, we heard this voice. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. You see, from that point on, Peter's life was all oriented around this event, this transfiguration. When he saw that happen, he knew everything was true. And anything that did not conform to that was false. If you want to confirm in your heart that your faith is true, believe the transfiguration. If you're suffering, believe the manifestation Of the transfiguration, if you want to grow in your faith in Jesus Christ, believe the transfiguration. If you don't know who Jesus is, you're going to get there and you're going to you're going to in your heart and one day with your eyes, see this glorious Jesus who's revealed in the transfiguration. Why don't you listen to him? Listen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you at this, at the height of Mark's gospel, you uncloaked yourself and manifested in just a brief moment, your full glory. Oh Lord, in our hearts, we ask you would do a great work by your spirit to confirm that glory to give us faith. Lord, help us to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen.